Now today is the fourth Sunday in Lent. We're halfway through this, this time of Lent. We're at the halfway mark. And the Sunday is known as Laetari or Laetari Sunday. And that's for the first word of the entrance antiphon, Laetari, which means rejoice in Latin. It is the Sunday of joy. It's a kind of break, if you will, from the sometimes dour and dark nature of Lent. And that's why we're having the soup supper later this afternoon. It's also an excuse to maybe cheat a bit on your Lenten resolution. Although feast Sundays aren't really cheating, but that's another story. Today's gospel reading is the powerful, disturbing, and memorable parable of the prodigal son. Now, it may not be apparent how this troubling story of a wayward child gets us to joy, gets us to rejoice, but I assure, it, I assure you it does. It just takes some time and patience and a willingness to go beyond the very familiar story of the lost son and equally important, his jealous brother, and even to think about the father differently. In preparation for this sermon, I revisited a book that I love very deeply. It's Henry Nouwen's The Return of the Prodigal Son. It was first published in 1992. Nouwen, in it, Nouwen recounts a challenging period in his life when he had lost his way among academics and ego and success and his own emptiness of purpose and how a chance engagement with a poster print of Rembrandt's epic painting, also called The Return of the Prodigal Son, set him on his path back toward finding himself and finding God again, finding God inside himself and in the community he would come to serve. That's kind of ironic. The painting hangs to this day in St. Petersburg, Russia, in the Hermitage Museum, And I say ironic because this incredibly powerful image of redemption and forgiveness and recovery may be lost to Western eyes for generations. Lost due to the vindictive, jealous cravings of another earthly king, or better put, another prodigal son. I've never seen the picture in person, and likely never will. It's reproduced as well as we could on the front of this morning's worship booklet, and I encourage you to take some time with it. Both the painting and the parable are so rich, so incredibly rich. I, I wish we could spend the rest of Lent in a sermon series dedicated to what I think is the most fascinating of Jesus' parables. Now, the image is huge. It's apparently eight feet tall and six feet wide. And while difficult to see in the reproduction, it features six characters. The father, the prodigal son bowing to him, the unhappy elder son, and three other figures that are barely seen in the background. They appear to be gathering for a celebration or maybe a judgment. It's hard to tell. Now, it's a familiar image burned into our subconscious just as the prodigal son story is held, if you're like me, deep within the story you tell yourself about yourself. I know it sounds confusing, but let me explain. All my life, since I've known this story of the prodigal son, 
I've imagined myself to be the prodigal son, the lost one. In this way, I was like Henry Nouwen. I left home as soon as I could and traveled and traveled and traveled and traveled some more to a whole bunch of distant countries. Sometimes my travel was literal, visiting and living in a variety of places around the world, but more often my travel was spiritual. I rejected the life of parents and friends and relatives of my small town home, all in search of some place, any place, where it was happening, where it mattered, whatever it was, I was never sure. And a mild spoiler alert, no surprise, but this does not end well. I never made it much beyond identifying myself with the prodigal child, and in some muddled way, counting on the welcome of the bereaved father and the jealous brother back into the fold. Nowen's book-long dissection of Rembrandt's painting blew my mind, though. Not only were there the prodigal son, the jealous brother, the welcoming father, but there were also these bystanders, these mute figures looking on. Were they happy for the long-lost, now-returned son? Or did they join the older brother in judgment, in understandable righteous indignation? And I wondered, where in my life have I stayed back in the margins, neither judging or approving or maybe a little bit of both, while acts of extreme grace, mercy, and maybe also righteous disapproval happen right in front of me? Was I inclined to join the party, to the celebration, or rather to silently judge, disgusted by the father's apparent weakness in welcoming back the errant boy? You know, it's hard to overstate the error of the prodigal son. In the ancient Middle East, as in many places today, asking early for a son's inheritance is akin to telling the father he's no longer useful and might as well be dead. It's the livelihood of the entire family, and the son taking his share early means more hardship for those he leaves behind, his father, his mother, the brother, and the whole rest of the clan. It's kind of an unthinkable act that across the years has lost a good deal of its shock value for us. The son leaves for a distant country, and he lives the life of, a wor of the world, consumed by a life of acquisition and competition, of eating, drinking, and general dissolute living, we're told. It seems short-lived, though, because occupying barely a sentence until disaster falls. A famine grips the country where he's living, and our prodigal son sells himself into servanthood, descending so deep until he envies the pigs their slop that they're eating. Then he remembers his father, and he turns. He turns back to his previous life as the well-regarded son and wills to go back, but not as the son, but as a hired hand. You see, even in his return, he keeps denying the father. Being a hired hand lets him keep the distance keep his options open in case something better comes along. He even tells the father, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. 
In the painting, it shows him kneeling before his father. The image is off-center, just to the left of the main part of the painting, and, but Rembrandt's light focuses on the father, specifically on the father's hands. The prodigal son kneels in front of him, his left sandal misplaced, his head shorn like a prisoner of war, or in our more current imagination, maybe an abandoned refugee or a survivor of the Holocaust. The old man looks down, and to my eyes anyway, he looks with affection, with care, with deep, deep love. His son has returned. Slaughter the fatted calf, let the party begin. Now, in telling of this tale, it's easy to overlook the context for Jesus' parable. We find it in the opening line of this morning's scripture. All the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to, Je- to listen to Jesus, and the Pharisees and scribes were grumbling and saying, this fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. Those Pharisees and scribes. It's all a challenge to Jesus' authority, and Jesus replies with one of three parables that leave no doubt to the overwhelming generosity of God and to our response to rejoice. God's so generous, in fact, that one dines with the sinners to share the abundance of God's grace. One rejoices at the finding of the wayward sheep in the the parable of the shepherd, or the finding of the lost coin again in the parable of the widow. Rejoice with me, they all exclaim. But in the picture of the older brother, he's slightly elevated, and he's kind of stuck at the right of the image. He shares the righteous indignation of the Pharisees and the scribes. Law and order, fairness. It's the right way, isn't it? So you see him, he hovers, his lips pursed, his hands clenched in anger. Now never mind that this is not actually what's described in the reading where we find the older brother in the field approaching the house when he hears the festivities. Now, here the elder sibling literally looks down his nose in dramatic effect and judgment. Listen, for all these years I have been working like a slave for you and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you have never given me even a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. Yet you kill the fatted calf for him? Henry now unrightly wonders about this exchange. He asks, which does more damage, the lust of the younger sibling or the resentment of the older one? He goes on, ever notice why there is so much resentment among the just and the righteous? The elder son is not home either, even though he never left. He's missing something. And as much of my somewhat wayward youth resembled the prodigal son, it was in the righteous indignation of the elder son where I truly found my voice. In my grumbling and complaining and whining and even and griping about my work, my place in life, my position with my friends, colleagues, clients. Even in seminary, I found myself working like never before for some kind of recognition or affirmation. Truth be told, even in these years at St. Peter's, 
I've sometimes found myself grumbling a little, maybe grumbling about a bit about some perceived slight or another, kind of like the disgruntled elder brother. And I wonder how much of our societies and how much even our churches desire to, as I like to say, take my toys and leave. It's like the elder son's jealousy at apparently being overlooked or maybe even forgotten. For all these years, I've been working like a slave for you. Now, I had read most of Henry Nouwen's book a few times over the past few years. I'd grown well acquainted with the dissolute prodigal son, the jealous older brother, because I saw big chunks of myself in them. It turns out I'd never really spent much time with the final chapters of the book. The end of the book focused on, surprisingly, the father. You see, I'd never much considered him the father. He was the distant one, granting grace and unremitting welcome, but he wasn't really an active person in Jesus' story of rejection and reconciliation. And now it ends his journey with the admonition for himself and I think by reflection for us to become like the Father. Now this had never occurred to me. How dare I become like the Father? No, it's so much more comfortable to stay with the juvenile sins of the prodigal son or the resentment and anger of the older one. How dare I be like the Father? But that's exactly what we're called to do. You see, we mature into being the Father. It makes me think of Paul's letter to the Corinthians, which we all know, when I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became an adult, I put an end to childish ways. And I had always thought of this as maturing from childhood to adolescence and on to adulthood. And I know that's part of it. But what if it's maturing to being more like the Father? To put aside our youthful sins of lust and jealousy, of envy and complaining, and be like the Father. It's interesting, God, as the Father, doesn't play a numbers game. God's kingdom, as now one puts it, a hidden, a single hidden act of repentance. One little gesture of selfless love, one small moment of true forgiveness is all that is needed to bring God from his throne to his returning son and fill the heavens with the sounds of divine joy. See, God celebrates the smallest turn, and we likewise are called to do the same, to live joyfully, full of joy, to be like the Father. We're filled with joy at the slightest move toward God. We rejoice, Laetari, like we're supposed to do this fourth Sunday in Lent. Now for us to be like the Father, we follow Jesus as always, and we change ourselves into a compassionate life. Now and says in the book's epilogue, Jesus shows us what true sonship is. He is the younger son without being rebellious. He is the elder son without being resentful. In everything, he is obedient to the Father, but never his servant. Through Jesus, I can become a true son again, 
and as a true son, I finally can grow to become compassionate, truly compassionate and thankful, just like our Father is. A compassionate life, you might call it a kingdom life, is not a worldly life. It's actually one that, model, that Jesus sets the model for us. It calls us to live joyfully, to celebrate the daily wonders of God's kingdom here on earth as we see them in the smallest thing. So we're called this Sunday, this Laetare Sunday, to rejoice. Amen.